This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com and stand by for a way to save 25% on your registration. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Sarah Fry grew up on an 80-acre farm and never imagined that property would be the way she could make a living and a career. However, a series of life events inspired her to create a business plan at the age of 16 that led her to build a seven-state farm today. It's her topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by the Top Producer Summit. Many of you are familiar with the Top Producer Summit. Perhaps you've attended or thought of attending. Now there are two great ways to participate. The upcoming Top Producer Summit will be held in Nashville, Tennessee, February 14th through the 16th. This is the summit's 25th year, and there are always plenty of great and informative sessions, interesting speakers, and opportunities to meet and learn from others in the industry. All told, there are over 40 speakers with timely topics and important information for those in agriculture. If you can't get to Nashville, join us online the following week, February 22nd and 23rd, for more exclusive content. Hopefully that's all of interest, but there's something else very important. You can take 25% off your registration with the code FARMING at tpsummit.com. Again, take 25% off your registration by using the code FARMING. Just go to tpsummit.com to register and learn more about this year's summit. How many acres of farmland do you need to make a living? For Sarah Fry, it all began at the age of 16 with just 80 acres. Her hard work and vision helped her grow that farm over time. She'll share the story of how a chance meeting at Walmart secured a contract for several semi-loads of produce each week at a time when she didn't even own a semi. It's quite a story and one with many lessons all of us can apply in business and life. Sarah Fry is my guest, and Sarah is going to be one of the guests at the upcoming Top Producer Summit, but certainly has a quite a story in her own right. And Sarah, it's really a privilege to get to visit with you. And many people perhaps may not know some of your roots and how you got started in farming. I'm going to let you pick up that story wherever you like, because you got started in farming at a very early age and, and learned how to do some of this uh, definitely before you ever got to your 20s. Isn't that right? I did. I grew up on a uh, small family farm in southern Illinois, Andrew, and it was a it was a really uh, it was a really interesting upbringing. Um, it was uh, a kind of a, a working farm. We had a lot of different, you know, animals, and then we also grew some grains and different things. But it was a, it was a small farm. It was only eighty acres. Um, and I actually recently wrote and published a book called The Growing Season that is not a business book by any means. It's um, more of a memoir. And, you know, I talk about what that was like growing up in, in southern Illinois. And it's, it's funny because when people um, in different parts of the country find out I'm from Illinois. They say, oh, I love Chicago. And I just kind of giggle because I'm like, well, I grew up closer to Kentucky than I did Chicago. Um, but, um, yeah, very, very early, uh, ag roots and quite honestly, it was never my dream or ambition, certainly to stay on the farm. In fact, everything that I did in my, you know, early years, um, was meant to move me off of that farm. And then as a teenager, 
ultimately I made the decision to stay behind. I grew up on the farm with four older brothers and they had all left and went off to college because back then, well, even by today's standards, you certainly couldn't make a living, uh, you know, on 80 acres. So they knew that they had to leave and get educations and, and go do different things with their lives. And being the youngest, I was the last kid left and I was going to leave the farm just like they all did. And then and there was a moment where I had this epiphany to stay behind for better or worse and try to uh, build a life off of the land that we were raised on. And, you know, fast forward to my life today, uh, we own and operate Fry Farms, which is a fresh fruit and vegetable company that uh, grows um, products in seven different states and thousands of acres later, um, you know, it all just kind of started, though, on that little patch of earth in southern Illinois. Well, I've read a little bit of your story, and I know that you talk more about it in the book there that you mentioned, the growing season as well. Describe for folks, though, when you're a teenager, you begin to take this over, and was it you just having to scratch things together in order to survive, or was it a vision that you had of what you could do? Because you, I believe, are growing melons, but then switch to pumpkins or do pumpkins in addition. How did you begin to make this happen? Because Certainly, you went from 80 acres to now farms, you know, in seven states, and that didn't happen overnight, but it happened, it started when you were a teenager. Yeah. Um, you know, as with any entrepreneur and anything that you do, um, when you're starting out, you have to figure out how to do more with less. And when you think of the less in this situation, it was the number of acres. And I knew that I certainly wouldn't be able to do anything productive with the, the land uh, that I had taken over when I was a teenager. Because, it, you know, it, in the traditional sense of, of farming, because it was such a small plot of earth. So I had to ask myself the question, how do I do more with less? And that just naturally um, lent itself to the idea of growing fresh fruits and vegetables on the land because your, you know, your input costs were higher, but your yields, you know, there, you, you could sell those crops for a higher value. And um, because I had joined my mother on this small delivery route that she had in the summers where she delivered melons to local grocery stores, it was a, it was very natural for me to think about, okay, I'm going to grow fruits and vegetables because I don't need a lot of land to be able to do that and, and to be successful. So that's ultimately how, um, you know, I found the, the highest and best use of, of the land. Take me back then to that time as well, because I think somewhere in this story, there's a, a Walmart connection. Were you working at Walmart or saw an opportunity there and that helped then <laughs> grow this? Where does that begin to fit into the story somewhere back there? Sure. So before I bought the farm, um, when I was 16, I was attending high school and college simultaneously. And then I had also kind of started my own little business out of the back of the pickup truck. My mom went to work for a radio station and I took over that small grocery delivery route of 12 stores and I had grown it into about 150 different retail grocery stores that I was delivering to among the retail grocery stores um, or retail stores rather, because at the time they were just division one Walmart stores. I, um, I was selling, you know, to Walmart, albeit direct to their stores and not through distribution centers. And then, um, one day as I was driving from a farm over in Vincent's, Indiana, where I used to buy melons, I saw 
this large building being erected and it was actually a Walmart distribution center. It was literally being built. And I saw this, you know, the sign that said Walmart DC 6059. And I, you know, as I'm driving by in my pickup truck, I'm thinking to myself, wow, wouldn't that be great if I could just, you know, take this pickup truck load of melons directly to that DC and drop them off at one spot. And then they could distribute them to the stores. You know, I was a kid. <laughs> I was thinking at that time, um, you know, how do I save myself, you know, at the time of going to all of these stores, I wasn't thinking at the time about delivering semi-truck load quantities. But anyway, one day I actually stopped in there before it was officially open. And, um, you know, there wasn't even really any anyone working at the at the front in security in the building because they really weren't open. But I just walked through the door and I started walking around in this distribution center and I ran into this man. And he said, yeah, oh, can I help you? And I said, are you going to have a produce buying office here? And he said, as a matter of fact, we are. And the woman who's going to run it, she happens to be here. And I met this woman by the name of Laura Marshall. She was setting up her office and uh, I said, um, you know, it's great to meet you. I'm I'm a, one of your suppliers. I take melons directly to your stores. And are you going to be a, accepting those kinds of deliveries here? And she said, as a matter of fact, I am. And I'm so glad you stopped by. I'm going to need three to five semi loads of watermelons every week, and and two or three loads semi loads of cantaloupes every week. And she said, will you be able to deliver that here to this DC? And I said, absolutely. And I shook her hand, and we visited for a while. And she told me what I needed to do because at the time I um, just had a vendor agreement where I was like selling directly to the stores. And so, you know, I left and as I was walking out of the uh, distribution center to the, to the parking lot, I'm, I look at, at the time when I was driving went to like a uh, three quarter ton uh, Chevy pickup truck with a 16 foot gooseneck trailer behind it that I had been hauling these melons in. And I'm looking at the truck and then the, you know, the light goes off in my head and I think, wait a minute. She said, semis, I don't have a semi. <laughs> and so um, it was really kind of in that moment, it was a, a pivotal moment in my business because I remember thinking to myself, okay, now I have, um, you know, I was building a, a real business before then, but now this was getting ready to get very real. And so I called one of my brothers, my brother, John, who was at college down at uh, the University of Louisville. And I said, you know, I, I think I um, I think I have a real business now. And, you know, I think it's actually going to be big enough at some point where, you know, all of all of my brothers can come home and and join me back at the farm, you know, because no one just really I mean, it's not like we didn't love the land that we grew up on. There just wasn't an opportunity there. And so um, as I was expanding that business, it was creating opportunities in this very sort of isolated rural part of America um, for my brothers to be able to come home and actually build a life and and have a career and and grow a business. So one by one, they came home and joined me in the business as I began to, to grow it with not just Walmart, but all of the other national retailers as well. And Fast forward to today, as we've built our business, we had to diversify into other growing regions and other states. And um, and then we also diversified our customer base as well. And now we do business directly with the top 25 retailers in, in the nation, providing, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables for, you know, American grown fresh fruits and vegetables for their consumers. 
I think that all of us are probably inspired by somebody that can take 80 acres and turn it into what you have done. And I suspect that, you know, your book, The Growing Season, gets into that a little bit more because it's about more than growing crops. Sure. Can you give us insights into how you began to do that? And I, I know it's not just all luck that you happened to walk into the distribution center the right day. There were things you were doing or perhaps mentors or others that you had in your life. How can we learn to do some of what you were able to do? What were some of the keys along the way that helped you to grow into what you are today? Well, that's, you know, it's interesting. That's why I tell so many stories uh, from my childhood, both, you know, good and bad, you know, and some of the stories are actually quite tough to, to be able to read. And once again, the book is, it's a memoir and it's not a business or a how-to book, but rather a, sort of a life lessons book that I think that, everything that I had went through from the time that I was, you know, a, a very, very small um, little girl uh, growing up on that farm had prepared me for that moment. You know, there's, there's such a thing as luck that, you know, it's, you, you really only get lucky when, when two things meet and that is luck and preparation. And so I, I believe that, you know, everything that I had experienced and um, everything that growing up, how and where I did grow up, prepared me for that moment to be able to shake that woman's hand and look her in the eye and say, yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. And have that confidence in myself and my abilities to, you know, be able to, to pull it off. And I think, um, you know, it's so many farm kids really honestly, you know, have a lot of that instilled in them at an early age. I think my uh, situation was a a little unique in, in a lot of the hardships that we endured growing up you know, how and where we did. But um, ultimately, uh, what was the, you know, what most people would have looked at as a, as an incredibly tough disadvantage became the advantage for me at such an early age, because I feel like everything that I ever went through, like the worst was already over. You know, I had already survived so many of those things that you know keep you up at night so what did I what did I really even have to lose and um, you know there were a lot of experiences that I had growing up on that farm uh, with four older brothers that built my confidence and allowed me to do things and and grow into really the the person you know even though I was a kid a teenager um, but it allowed me to grow into the person that I needed to be in that moment, not just to have this epiphany that I was going to buy this, you know, farm that was financially distressed and on the brink of foreclosure um, and, and change my own life's, you know, goals and aspirations in a moment, but to, um, you know, take that chance on, on the business and, and believe in myself and know that, what I ultimately was growing, I didn't know how I was going to do it. It's not like I had some grand plan. I just felt that I felt that I could, you know, dig a life out of the dirt and not just a life for me, but a life that was um, suitable for my family as well. Are there any keys that you would tell perhaps young people or even older people in agriculture to say, you know, looking back, these were some of the key things that uh, really helped me to be able to where I am today with my business. What would you share with them? You know, I would just kind of go back to, you know, my early learnings, whether it was the, you know, the disadvantage that we had kind of starting out. I mean, I didn't, 
obviously have, uh, I didn't have everything figured out and certainly didn't have a lot of the resources really in the early days um, to, to start a company. So I didn't, I didn't have everything just perfectly figured out and planned. I just started to do it and then figured out things along the way. So, you know, example of that might be we couldn't at the time, you know, um, when we were first starting the business, we needed harvest vehicles. And, you know, I was looking at, you know, tractors and trailers and harvest equipment to be able to bring the crops in from the field. And I knew, you know, oh my gosh, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars um, for this equipment that, and we can't afford it. So instead of saying, okay, all right, well, we can't afford it, so we shouldn't do it. We had to think, um, we had to be very innovative and we had to, we had to think outside the box and like, okay, well, you know, how do we do more with less? And we ultimately ended up finding these old school buses that were like $2,500 a piece. And we converted them into um, harvest vehicles. So instead of having to buy a tractor and these very, you know, long harvest wagons, um, we, you know, got a $50,000 piece of equipment basically all in one for $2,500. And it wasn't anything that, you know, some, a cutting torch and a little bit of welding, you know, couldn't help us manufacture. So we started making, you know, creating these buses. And ultimately that innovative solution that we used, you know, 25, almost 30 years ago now is the, is what we continue to use today. So we use, uh, you know, buses to harvest our crops all across the country. And now we have hundreds of these buses and it's, you know, they're still in motion. So I would say, you know, when you're thinking about any business, really, or starting out on your own, I mean, the first thing we tend to think of is, okay, what do, what do we need? What do we have to have to get this business started? You know, and what are, what are the capital requirements and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and I think that a lot of times folks don't make it really past those sort of, you know, initial thoughts or conversations because they hit a roadblock and they think maybe, oh, well, you know, that's my barrier of entry. And, you know, really when, when I was a kid, I was, I wasn't thinking about, okay, that's going to stop me. I thought, how do I get around it, over it, under it, or, or, or bust right through it, you know? And I think it's kind of that sort of thinking, um, where you challenge yourself to, to figure out no matter what the challenge is that, that you're going to figure out a way over it, around it, or, you know, under it doesn't matter what it is that you're, you're getting ready to embark upon. And I think um, just getting started is what I tell a lot of entrepreneurs too, you know, that uh, they have a great idea. A lot of people have great ideas and ultimately it, you know, it sort of seems like, you know, they maybe never get off the ground because they don't ever start. And I just tell folks, you don't have to have everything figured out just perfectly or, you know, the perfect plan on paper. You just have to get started. And if you get started in a very small way, that's okay. Just get started. I don't care how you do it. Just start. And, you know, having a plan is great. And, you know, we do a lot of planning at Fry Farms every year. In fact, this is the the time of year that we're planning. And um, those plans are very fluid and they're they're still very flexible. And, And now we're you know, growing thousands of acres of fruits and vegetables in seven different states. And it's very different than, than how it was before. Um, but the, you know, the spirit has not changed. And that is, you know, we're going to make these plants, but we're going to have to get, be flexible and 
we're going to have to accept whatever challenges that, that come along the way and, and find a way, you know, to get to get through them. Speaking of challenges, of course, what you're growing gets to the consumer perhaps quicker than what a lot of farmers do because it has to go through processing chains and so forth. But do you find that since perhaps you're closer to the consumer, how do you see that consumer changing or how is that working back into how you have to change the way you farm or the business you do just to keep up with the times? What trends do you see changing? At this time in our lives, I, what, what I'm seeing is, you know, there's more of an emphasis on uh, locally grown fruits and vegetables or American grown fruits and vegetables. Not too many people realize this, that over 50% of all of the fruits and vegetables that we consume in this country are imported. And that's kind of a sad and scary fact in, in a lot of ways. And I think um, if there was a bright spot that came from COVID, it was consumers had a renewed interest and and not only how their food was being grown, but where and who. And and that's true whether it's, you know, in in my industry or really any industry, whether it's our, our you know, where does our where does our meat come from? Where do our pharmaceuticals come from? And, you know, you don't really think about where your food comes from until you go to the grocery store and the shelves are empty. And then you start asking questions. Okay, where who who's to blame? Why, you know, why can't I get my favorite brand of X? Um, and so I think that that heightened consumer awareness, just simply because we're, you know, we've sort of came out of, of the pandemic and we're still living with, you know, shortages in the, in the supply chain now. And, um, you know, consumers are, are paying more for um, the food that they're eating that, you know, really, I mean, Everything has, you know, if you can get it, you're paying so much more for it now. So I think average everyday Americans are paying more attention to, you know, where their food comes from, and you know, where, really where everything comes from that they, that they have to spend money on. So I think that's actually going to be good for the American farmer. You're speaking at the upcoming Top Producer Summit in February. Hopefully people will be able to, to come there to Nashville and hear some of the story, kind of give a preview of what you'll be talking about. Well, I'm really excited um, to be joining everyone in Nashville. I um, think it's an incredible opportunity for folks in our industry to come together and, and you know, sort of share the best of and, and ideas and, and learn. I plan to talk a little bit about the growing season, the memoir that I wrote, and hopefully we're going to have a, a, a very interactive presentation as well and hopefully shine a little bit of hope on the future of agriculture as well. One of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, not every growing season is perfect and that's true in life as well. And and those are some of the lessons uh, that I sort of talk about in the book is that every growing season is different and you have to figure out, you know, how do you take the good from that and how do you see past, whether it's, you know, in our business, we, not every piece of fruit that we grow is perfect and we have ugly fruit and we had to look at, you know, what can we do with the, with the ugly fruit that is, um, you know, left over at the end of the harvest. I mean, it's still good fruit. It may have visual imperfections, but it still tastes great. And in our business, you know, we had to challenge ourselves to look beyond the, the imperfections and find the higher purpose for the ugly fruit. And ultimately, we, we started making uh, juices and beverages 
out of much of the fruit that would otherwise be wasted. And that lesson really sort of applies in life as well as how do you see past life imperfections and and learn for, from the more difficult uh, growing seasons and ultimately turn that into something that, that's better and beautiful um, in the future. Sarah, I really appreciate the time and hearing your story, and I know we're looking forward to hearing more of the story in Nashville coming up. I can't wait, Andrew, and I look forward to meeting you in person as well. Sarah will be one of the speakers at the upcoming Top Producer Summit in Nashville, February 14th through the 16th. And be sure to check out her book, The Growing Season. There is much to Sarah's story, and the book will share her life's path and how both challenges and successes helped her build her large ag operation today. That's it for this edition of our show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at FarmingTheCountryside.com, and you can get more info by following Farming the Countryside on Facebook. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through the 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com.